The word ekphrasis comes from the Greek for the description of the work of art produced as a rhetorical exercise. It is a vivid, often dramatic, verbal description of a visual art piece. This is Darwin Messidu. Welcome to The Ekphrastic, a podcast where we paint pictures with words. Today's subject, Edward Manet. But first, let's get into some art news. Let's see, we have something here from the Washington Post by uh, Sebastian Smee. This is how bad things are for museums. How bad are they, Sebastian? They now have a green light to sell off their art. Whoa. So he begins. Every major art museum is sitting on assets that from the outside look enviable. They're called works of art. If they're by Vincent Van Gogh or Frida Kahlo or Jackson Pollock, they may be worth tens or even hundreds of millions of dollars. Okay, we have one of these articles that's gonna have a ton of names in it. Let's see how I do. I'm trying to pronounce all these. Even if they're by less famous artists and consigned to storage along with perhaps 90% of any given museum's collection, they can still be valued at eye-watering amounts. Set beside, say, a scary budget deficit or the prospect of having to lay off employees, this knowledge can take on an almost voluptuous glow. To counter the constant temptation to regard artwork as a way to get quick cash, the museum may Heavily, uh, the museum world heavily polices the sales of art for per- from permanent collections, otherwise known as deaccessioning. The powerful association of art museum directors, made up of directors of museums in the United States, Mexico, and Canada, has long frowned on any museum that sells off artwork for purposes other than acquiring new art. Okay, so this is a, it looks like this is a pretty long article, so I'll skip around a little bit. AMD frowns ha- uh, have an effect. Museums that dare to ignore its guidelines, as the Berkshire Museum in Pittsburgh, Massachusetts did in 2018, ultimately selling more than 20 works from its collection to raise money for a renovation, are censured, sanctioned, and publicly shamed. For a renegade, or perhaps simply desperate museum director, a decision to sell works from the collection, even if it's to raise money deemed necessary for survival, it might mean career death. However, in an unprecedented move, and as a direct result of the coronavirus pandemic, the AMD has recently relaxed these guidelines. It's too soon to gauge the effect, but it's already big news in the art world. Once unthinkable, the notion of selling off a Claude Monet to plug a, a budgetary hole or to fend off a total financial meltdown is suddenly something to contemplate. The only problem, of course, is that once you sold a Monet or a Norman Rockwell, it's very hard to get that back. And I'll say, I'll interject and say that, you, yeah, you have the main reason somebody might come to your museum is because you have this one particular painting or this one, uh, um, uh, this one art piece that that is the draw of. I mean, 70% of your clientele, and that one's gone now. You have, what, one or two other pieces that may have some interest, but now you're going to get less interest in your your museum in total. So it's a double-edged sword on this one. 
uh, skipping around here. Since mid-March, when museums began closing because of the coronavirus outbreak, income from admissions and retail has evaporated. Turmoil in financial markets has caused endowments to plummet. Fundraising has been severely constrained, and for many museums, it has quickly become a question of figuring out how to survive. The revised guidelines touch on two areas. First, they state that any museum that decides to use restricted endowment funds, trust, or donations for general operation expenses will not be censured or sanctioned. The idea here is to allow museums to the financial flexibility they need in an uncertain economic environment. Okay, well, how are you going to do this? Uh, how are you just... Money is fungible. It says, you know, first they state that any museum that decides to use restricted endowment funds, trust, or donations to general operating expenses. General operating expenses? What does that even mean? That could be anything. I could, I could say, I could label anything to be general operating expenses. Um, okay, they said that the language here is careful, but there is no doubt this represents a major departure in the recognition that many art museums are in financial freefall. AMD says it recognizes the extensive negative effects of the current crisis on the operation and balance sheets of many art museums. It acknowledges, too, the impossibility of knowing when revenue streams might return to normal. Okay, so uh, skipping around a little further. Um, conscious of the significance of this about face, AMD has tried to look as though it's still walking calmly in the same direction. Oh, these guys. <laughs> Like you, you definitely have changed the policy and you have opened this window um, and it's just gonna be wider and wider and people are gonna, it, museums are gonna take advantage of it and who knows if you're even be able to, <laughs> the horse is gonna be out of the barn on this one. I, I mean, I can understand. I have a little, I have sympathy for um, these museums that, and these galleries that, um, you know, they, they employ people, you know, they're part of uh, their local economy and their and the areas that they're in. Um, but the fact of the matter is, there's going to be some bad actors on this one. There's going to be some bad actors who are going to take advantage of this and and uh, start some shady, start doing some shady moves with some of these art pieces. Um, that could that could potentially that could potentially be catastrophic for the entire market. But let's see how uh, this article goes. Uh, at this caution, at th all this caution and qualification makes sense, but in reality, almost any museum expense from the salaries of curators, conservators, uh, conservators, sorry, and other staff members to costs associated with building, maintenance, and utilities could conceivably fit the description of direct care of the museum's collection. See, that's what I'm saying. But the money is fungible. Uh, and let's be honest, it's very theoretical at a practical level, especially during the crisis. Money inside big institutions such as art museums is fairly fungible. If a work of art is sold, the money raised is difficult to silo. Hello, we've heard that from before. You may want to rewind back about 30 seconds. <laughs> okay. At the time, it seemed an extraordinary exchange, but after taking into account the MFA has one of the world's greatest impressionist collections. Oh, okay, so let's go back here. Um, in normal times, the dis and despite the strict guidelines, the accessioning goes on all the time. The results can be transformative, restorative, or alarming. Sometimes all three at once. In 2011, for instance, the Museum of Fine Art in Boston sold eight works from its permanent collection to raise the money it needed to buy a single painting, Man at the Bath, by Gustave Calbo. Oh, wow. I don't know if I pronounced that right. Y'all let me know. The painting is auctioned off Included canvases by Monet, Paul Gugin, Alfred Sisley, 
Camille Pissarro, and Pierre-Auguste Renoir. Thanks a lot. At the time, it seemed an extraordinary exchange, but after taking into account that the MFA has one of the world's greatest impressionist collections, that most of the works it's chosen to sold, uh, it's, it's sold off uh, were in storage anyways, and the paintings by Calabot and artists regarded, regarded as increasingly important rarely come on the market. The decision began to, to look rational, even though it was controversial probably. More recently, the Baltimore Museum of Art selected work by white men whose art they own in abundance, such as Andy Warhol and Franz Klein. Uh, go back to a couple episodes, we talked about Andy Warhol. You might recognize that. And uh, apparently there's one less Warhol hanging out in the Baltimore Museum. So they sold it for those uh, four pieces by African-Americans, including Amy Sherald, Charles Gaines, Faith Wrinkled, and Lynette Yadon Boyke. Oh man, I'm butchering these people's names, I know it. Here too, the thinking was sound and only mildly controversial. I don't think it's reasonable or appropriate for a museum like the BMA to, to speak to a city that is 64% black unless we, re, we reflect our constituents. Chris Bedford, the museum's director, told Artnet in 2018. In 2018, Michael O'Hare, professor of public policy at the University of California, Berkeley, argued uh, in San Francisco to the San Francisco Chronicle that Art Institute of Chicago could offer free admission in perpetuity by selling 1% of its collection and putting the resulting money in an endowment. The interest on the endowment alone, O'Hare said, would cover the cost. His argument rested on dubious uh, premises, attempts to assign credible value of the art in the in the market, uh, and that's usually notoriously fraud. The vast majority, because you're, you're just guessing games and based on past sales, it's just like everything like the stock market, for example, past performances are not a predictor of future results. So, so either way, the the museum wants to avoid selling its most precious work, selling off one percent by value for a single piece that you may have, and you're trying to sell off the uh, the excess. That one percent is is going to add up to a lot of uh, individual art pieces that you're going to end up getting rid of. So moving down a little fur further, um, the potential gains for any kind of large scale deaccessioning are almost invariably less than simple market valuations may suggest. What museums need now is a combination of direct help and the flexibility to act in their own best interest. The new guidelines are an effort to provide the latter. But I believe the old principles remain sound. Even in these unprecedented circumstances, museum directors should not panic or be drawn into overly short-term thinking. This guy's pretty dramatic here. The choices they face aren't simple. In some cases, they may have to act to ensure their very survival. If they fail at the ex existential level, their entire collections may hit the market. But they have been entrusted with the care of things that are collectively, as well as individually, of profound and lasting importance. It is their job to safeguard these collections for the future, not to sift them with a view of finding parts of them wanting, expendable, and converted to cash. So that was by Sebastian Schmee. He's a Pulitzer Prize winning art critic at the Washington Post and the author of The Art of Rivalry, Four Friendships, Betrayals and Breakthroughs in Modern Art. Check him out. And now back to the ekphrastic. Born in Paris in January 1832 
and known as one of the most controversial artists of his time, Edouard Manet has risen above the detractors of his time to prove his genuine talent that is worthy of emulation. With several paintings that have inspired young artists during his heyday, he revealed how innovation is not always welcome in society, but it's one of the gateways to the future. Uh, a pivotal figure in the transition from realism to impressionism, Edward Manet was an influential painter. He uh, left his own unique mark in the world. As a child, his father was a judge who wanted him to pursue a career in law. But his uncle, however, saw that young Edward's talents were more suited for art, often taking him to the Louvre. It was not until Manet failed two interest exams into the French Navy that his pops relented to his son's wishes and allowed him to start an art art lessons at the academic painter um, at the Louvre, uh, Thomas Cortier. Under Cortier, he basically copied the works of great masters in the Louvre. The young artist was also influenced by Franz Hals, uh, Diego Velazquez, and Francisco Goya. Manet's paintings were influenced by the Impressionists, yet he was uninterested in becoming involved with exhibitions during this era in art. He was more keen on displaying his works at the Salon or Salon, if you're speaking French. So he could avoid any notions that he was representative of the Impressionist style of painting. Although Manet was also fond of using lighter colors, his paintings often had a hint of black, which was not typical at the time. In 1856, Manet opened a studio. His style in this period was characterized by loose brushstrokes, simplification of details, and the suppression of transitional tones. He uh, basically adopted a current style of realism initiated by Gustave Corbett. He painted contemporary subjects like beggars, singers, gypsies, people in cafes and bullfights. After his early years, he rarely did like religious stuff, mythological and historical subjects. But he did put a few of these out and uh, you can find them including uh, his uh, Christ Mocked, that's at the Art Institute of Chicago, and Christ with Angels in the Met in New York. Although his work was impressionistic, he resisted involvement with any specific style of painting and thus preferred to represent his works to the Salon of Paris rather than many impressionist exhibitions. So in 1875, some of his paintings were included in a book-length edition of Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven. And in 1881, 1881 he was awarded the Legion of Honor by, French, by the French government. Uh, today's Ephrastic poem is that very 1875 painting the Raven. I'll give you a second to search for it in your browser. The witness perched there, a witness of love. Confined in its black eyes was the violence of love, black outrage of love, lithograph printed with blunt force, love. Witness it. Perch there. Then dive headlong into the storm, bold strokes to create this form, the dark figure warns. To claim it is to claim scorn. Long live the memories of traumatizing love. Sorrow for the lost, looking for love stricken and stranded, beaten down by love, another victim of torture, a victim of love. So seize it, 
Take it, break it, drag it ashore until you leave a bleeding heart pulsing upon the floor. You never truly love Lenore. Love like you've never loved before. Only this and nothing more. Since 1880, Manet was suffering from a series of medical conditions, which was also one of the reasons why he was forced to receive treatment at Bellevue. Thus, he decided to rent a villa in the quieter part of Paris, and at this location, he painted the, one of the last portraits of his wife, Susan, Suzanne uh, Lenoff, uh, and that was the last, one of the last portraits he was able to complete before he died. He remained passionate about art even until his untimely uh, death in 1883. He died 11 days actually after he had his left leg amputated uh, due to gangrene from complications of syphilis and rheumatism, which he had so bad at, at a certain point that he was uh, partially paralyzed in the years leading up to his death. Besides 420 paintings, Manet left behind a reputation that would forever define him as the first of the moderns and a bold, influential artist. The late Manet painting, Le Printemps, in 1881, uh, painted in 1881, it sold to the Getty Museum for 65.1 mil, setting a new auction record for Manet, exceeding its pre-sale estimate of 25 to 35 mil at Christie's in November 2014. You can find his stuff all over the place, Chicago, Buenos Aires, even Budapest. If you're ever in New York, you must pay a visit to the MoMA and uh, hunt this guy down. I'm Dora Messadu. Thanks for listening. <laughs>